Well, hi everyone. Welcome back to Seminary Unboxed. I am Dr. Matt Ayers, your host of Seminary Unboxed and president of Wesley Biblical Seminary. And Wesley is the official, or Seminary Unboxed is the official podcast of Wesley Biblical Seminary. And we are back into our study on the book of Revelation after having some time away. Uh, I'm sure you've noted Dr. Murray Vassar, who was a guest host for me in my absence. Um, Hope you had a chance to listen to his installment on Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, and a little bit of 3. I'm going to pick up on 3 today. Um, I'm so grateful for Dr. Vassar. Um, I will say that I was dealing with just some family issues, some health issues uh, in the home and was unable to make that time. And Dr. Vassar has done his doctoral work even in the book of Revelation. So he is much more of a Revelation scholar than even I. And so I knew just the guy to call. Uh, I will say too, I'm sure you caught in that installment that Dr. Vassar uh, while teaching for Adjunct Forest Now, um, we do uh, plan on bringing him on full-time to teach with Wesley Biblical Seminary starting in July of 2023, and so we're excited about that new relationship that has formed with Dr. Vassar and what he's going to bring to uh, the greater ecosystem of our faculty here at WBS. Um, for those of you who may be unfamiliar with Wesley Biblical, our uh, sort of value proposition is that we develop trusted leaders for faithful churches. Um, I don't always talk about a lot, talk, talk about WBS a lot here in this context. I like to focus on the content of uh, whatever the episode is. I will say now, though, that uh, Wesley Biblical Seminary, kind of what sets us apart uh, from other institutions that are accredited by the Association of Theological Schools, a number of different things, but one of which is um, that we are fully committed to, and all of our faculty are fully committed to the doctrine of inerrancy. Uh, and, and what I mean by inerrancy, for those of you who are learned on the topic, is the Chicago Statement on Inerrancy, uh, that, that we believe the Bible is without error, um, and that uh, God who is sovereign uh, and who is omniscient, He knows all things, and also He doesn't lie. All those things the Scriptures say, and if He is the... Uh, the originator of the text has inspired the text, and the text will not uh, present to us any errors. Now, there's all sorts of caveats and nuances to this uh, notion. Uh, for example, uh, recognizing and embracing the notion of genre. That is, that the scriptures are not a science book, but rather a book about theological and spiritual truth. So when the sun's, when the Bible says the sun comes up, we know that scientifically that's not true, but we don't say that that's an error because uh, the Bible is speaking in regular colloquial language, not in scientific language. And so, uh, um, and also, you know, the ancient Near Eastern perspective of uh, that the world is a giant, the, the universe is a circle, and that above the earth in the firmament there are windows, and there's waters above, and those windows open, and the waters fall, and that's the origin of rain. Um, we know that that's not true, that there aren't waters above the atmosphere. Um, there's clouds that carry rain, precipitation, uh, but again, this isn't a scientific perspective. And so that's ju- those are just two quick examples of... Uh, sort of the nuancing of this doctrine of inerrancy. Uh, We are very committed to this doctrine. We believe that the Bible is the inspired Word of God. Um, But more on that later. I just try to give you a little bit here and there in Seminary Unboxed on who we are at Wesley Biblical Seminary. Um, So without further ado, I would like to get moving in our study on the book of Revelation, and I will say uh, I want to pick up a little bit where Dr. Vassar left off. And um, And I will say, too, that obviously we've spent quite a bit of time here even just preparing to look at the text. I talked a lot about, you know, our interpretive frame heading into even where we are now. Um, And Dr. Murray spent, you know, 30, 40 minutes on just two verses. But we will start to move along a little faster. Um, We take more time, especially in the introductory sections of any portion of literature or portion of of Scripture, because normally those sections are pregnant with the themes of the rest of the book. And so we have to be really careful and and look at high in high resolution detail at the opening sections of a book of Scripture or a segment of text. 
um, so that we can really be anchored and, and set the frame properly before moving on too quickly. So we're not going to spend quite as much time, you know, talking 10, 15 minutes a verse. We'll, we will move faster, but the introduction, these opening chapters, especially the opening chapter here, we spend a little bit more time on uh, in finer detail. So that being said, verse 3 says this, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and keep what is written. Actually, I'm sorry, I, I want to pick up at the end of two, and who bore witness to the word of God, the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Um, so, uh, here we have, who bore witness? Uh, this is talking about John. John is bearing witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Uh, so there's a couple things we need to point out here. Um, John is a faithful witness to the word. Uh, and this notion of faithful witness gets picked up later on in the book. Jesus is the faithful witness, according to the inaugural dress, or the inaugural vision. And then those who are being persecuted, Christians who are suffering persecution, are also called to be a faithful witness. That is, uh, staying true to the message that they have received. I could preach on this all day. Paul, um, I'm not going to, but I will say that Paul, uh, you know, writes the, uh, the letter to the church in Galatia, to the Galatians, the letter to the Galatians, and talks about how they have deviated from the message that they have once received. Um, also, the book of Hebrews starts out in chapter 2 talking about how important it is that those who have received the proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ don't forget what they were taught, even if a different message is given to them, given to them by angels, that the one true message is that which is delivered by Christ, once delivered for all the saints, right? And so uh, it, this, this notion of important and accurate witness is essential. Uh, in all of the scriptures, uh, has to, uh, this notion comes into play with regard to canonicity, what makes a book of scripture scripture, and its alignment with the apostolic witness of the historical person of Jesus Christ, God in flesh, right? So this notion of faithful witness that we see here, John bore faithful witness to the word of God. He did not deviate. What, it was, what was given him is what he gave the churches. He didn't add to it or take away from it. It is the true witness. Um, and this is, of course, a cry um, to the church even today that we see historic, classic, orthodox Christianity, a different version of that being taught, and that witness is not the true witness, the faithful witness. And so um, here we have this notion embedded in this text. So John bore witness to the word of God. And we could talk about that word witness and martyr. We, the Greek word for witness here is martyr. We'll talk more about that later because, of course, as church history progresses, it gets associated with those who are killed for their faith, who are faithful until death. Jesus, of course, being the first martyr. Um, but that's what the call of the book is. And John himself is suffering in exile at, on the island of Patmos because of his faithful witness. He then is a martyr in that sense. So, but the, the notion of what is a witness, some uh, who is uh, declaring, testifying to something that they've uh, encountered. Of course, one of the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not bear um, false witness. And so uh, the truth of the matter, John in his first epistle talks about, we have touched with our hands and seen with our eyes. They are witnesses to the fact. Uh, of course, that makes you think of doubting Thomas, who says, I will only believe if I witness it myself. Um, more we could say there, because again, this, this notion of witness, 
As I said a moment ago, introductions are pregnant with the themes of the whole, and this, this notion of witness is crucial to the book. Uh, to the Word of God and to the testimony, there's two ways to interpret this phrase, right? Are they two separate things, or are they synonymous? Those being the Word of God on the one hand and the testimony of Jesus Christ on the second. Are those two separate things that he is bearing witness to, or are those two of the same things? We're just talking about it in a different way. Um, so, I believe uh, either way is fine, and maybe it's, it's you know, one cop-out would say, well, it's both. I probably uh, would suggest that it is uh, the latter, it's, um, that they're the same thing, they're synonymous, they're running parallel. That is, the testimony of Jesus Christ is the Word of God. So witness to the Word of God and to... So one way to put this is, John, who bore witness to the Word of God, who is or that which is the testimony of Jesus Christ? And so the testimony of Jesus then, if we read it that way, is synonymous with the Word of God. That Jesus, as we know according to John, the author of this book, as I believe, not all scholars do, but I believe the same person who wrote the Gospel of John, 1, 2, 3, John also wrote this book, is making synonymous the Word and Jesus. There we have the Logos. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so uh, John is bearing witness to the Word of God. That is the testimony of Christ. So when we see Christ and we encounter Christ, what we see is, is yes, God in flesh, the incarnation, but also uh, the, the declarative, proclaiming Word of God, the truth of God. Deep theology here, but again, we're doing exegesis, not systematic theology. Um, so, but again, two ways to interpret this. The Word of God on the one hand and the testimony of Jesus on the other, or the same thing. I think it's the same thing. Um, so, moving on from there, even uh, to all that he saw. That's a little add-on phrase, right? So, it would be a complete... Uh, grammatical statement to say, he made it known by sending his angel to the servant John who bore witness to the word of God and to the testament of Jesus Christ, period. But we don't end there. There's a comma, even to all that he saw. Why do we have this particular comma? Um, this emphasizes, the emphasis of the verse here is that John includes everything that he witnessed. In other words, there's nothing absent or missing that needs added. It is a true witness. John's not taking away from what he saw, and he's not adding to what he saw. And this, of course, comes through in the book of Revelation as well. Um, so Revelation 22, 18 and 19 says this, I warn everyone who hears the words of this prophecy, hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. So in other words, there is an um, exhortation at the end of the book not to add or to take away from this prophecy that is the book of Revelation. And this resonates, this declaration that John gives witness. He bears witness to the Word of God and Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. There's not something missing. We don't need to augment it by adding something. And we don't have to take anything away. Now, um, something very similar is said in the Pentateuch with regard to Moses and his writing of the Torah uh, that no one should add to or take away from that Word. Now, um, you know, we're talking in... in specifics about the book of Revelation and the specific vision. However, as we read those verses for the end of the book of Revelation, which is the last paragraph of the last chapter of the last book um, of the last testament, right? Um, 
the church for centuries, we can even say millennia, have recognized that this declaration of not adding to or taking away from the book doesn't only apply to the book of Revelation, but by God's providence and his placement of this declaration at the end of the Bible as a whole applies to all of Scripture. Okay, so here's where we could launch into further discussion about the doctrine of sufficient of the sufficiency of Scripture, which means that the Bible contains everything necessary for believers to live or people to live a life that is fully pleasing to God. We don't need to add to it or take away from it. Um, those who add to the Scriptures are requesting more of people than what God's requesting for salvation, and those who take away from it are preventing people from living a life that's fully pleasing to God. Now, this, of course, um, gives rise, let's say, to another question, and that is, well, what do we do with things like the seven ecumenical councils, which I very much believe in, uh, the, the, the declarations of the church, the ecumenical church and the first you know, stages of its of its existence after Pentecost, after the, the canon being closed and moving forward. Um, well, I think that to suggest that um, creeds and councils and doctrines that come out of the creeds and councils, namely the seven ecumenical councils, are additions to the Word of God is a wrong way of thinking about what creeds and councils are and God's providence in working through the Holy Spirit uh, to guide the church in truth through uh, controversies and heresies that they were facing at the time. The right way to think about it is not that they were inventing, the councils and creeds are not inventing doctrine, they're not adding to the word, but rather they're seeking to preserve the apostolic witness of the New Testament and the witness of Jesus himself. That is, they are an attempt not to add to something or require of people more than what the Bible requires, but to clarify a distilled and definitive declaration of what the apostolic witness is specifically with regard to the divinity of Christ, the divinity of the Holy Spirit, the bodily resurrection of Christ, the personhood of Christ. Um, those are the main issues dealt with in these first seven ecumenical councils. And so doctrines, church history, creeds, tradition, um, they can certainly get into the category of adding to the scriptures. But when we're talking about the seven ecumenical councils, we're talking about the preservation of the biblical witness, not in addition to the biblical witness. So, um, oh man, we can talk about all sorts of other things here, but the sufficiency of Scripture, everything that needs shared is here. There's not something missing, even to all that he saw. Okay, picking up in verse 3 then, I know I'm just scratching the surface of some of these things and maybe opening up cans of worms and just sitting there, sitting them in front of you for them to crawl out and go all over the place. Uh, but I'm trying to stay on task here with regard to the exegesis of the text. So let's keep going to verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and keep what is written in it, uh, for the time is near. I think Murray treated this very thoroughly. I don't want to uh, touch too much on it more than what he's already said. Um, we know about literacy rates in the early world, or in the ancient world, reading aloud the prophecy. Blessed are those who hear. So um, there, this is a dual statement, right? Blessed are those who read it, and blessed are those who hear and keep it. So not just hearers of the word, but doers of the word. This is emphasized throughout the book as a whole. Once again, the introduction being pregnant with the motifs of the rest, as we see in the letters to the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3, at the end of each one, with those who have ears to hear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches, or what the angel says, or what the Spirit says to the angel of the churches. Um, this is a call to obey. And so uh, this isn't just here. This is throughout the book. There's a there's a exhortation, encouragement, and even command to say, he, just hearing it isn't adequate. You've got to do it. Uh, I can't help but think of Jesus who says, you say you love me, but you don't obey me, right? And so it is uh, ethics and the morality, the working out of faith, 
faith being not just mental assent to some truth. I believe that I locked the car door, right, uh, before. That's not what faith is in the context of saving faith in the church. It is a radical reorientation of our lives based on the lordship of Jesus. That is a change in behavior informed by this truth that we embrace. More could be said there. Um, I do want to say this is where this is definitively declared that this book is prophetic in nature, not just apocalyptic and not just epistolary, meaning that it has moral import for today, which is obviously directly re- related to what I'm saying now. Uh, that what is going to happen in the future should affect your behavior now and today, and there should be a sense of urgency about it. Now, I will say as well that <clears throat> this, you know, blessed are those who reads aloud the words of the prophecy. Um, This directly feeds into the notion and the concepts of the way that we do church today, especially in the Protestant tradition. You know, in the Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox traditions, the high moment of gathering together as a church body on the Sabbath is to partake in the Eucharist, right? The bread and the wine, the partaking of the the Word of God incarnate in, um, in the elements. Now, of course, without going into the details of the differentiation between Roman Catholic transubstantiation and Eastern Orthodox, that it's more than just a symbol. It's not exactly transubstantiation, but mysteriously the real presence of Christ. Um, Whereas Protestants, our high moment of worship is not necessarily feeding on the elements of the the body and blood of Christ, but feeding on, that is, the Word of God incarnate in the elements, but feeding on the Word of God as it's proclaimed from the pulpit. And so uh, this speaks to that sort of... um, conceptualization of what we're doing on Sundays, that even though not all Protestants take communion every single Sunday, we do sort of take communion every single Sunday in the sense that we are feeding together on the Word of God that is proclaimed. Um, Now, of course, that's a metaphysical feeding, but there's also a metaphysical aspect to the the body and the blood, the bread and the wine, or the bread and the grape juice, however you want to, you know, hash that out. Uh, in that, the active participation of the Eucharist is a response of the worshiper um, that's a public witness to all, going forward, taking the elements. You know, you're publicly declaring your faith and participation and therefore reaction, response, and engagement with the truth of the Word. Whereas with the, with the audible you know, declaration of the Word and feeding on the proclaimed Word of God, you could sit in the pew and listen and have no engagement. Either be tuned out or not adjust your lifestyle or even disagree with what's being proclaimed. And so that's why we do, of course, still need, <clears throat> excuse me, the actual elements in the body and the blood of Christ is because it provides for us the opportunity to actually engage and to respond. So there we have the moral import, the words of the prophecy. Um, of course, uh, for the time is near. Um, Murray dealt with that. Is it near? A lot of things didn't happen. Still things have yet to happen yet, but there's a sense of urgency. I don't want to go into more uh, detail on that in this moment. Bear with me for just a second. Um, Okay. Um, So moving on, we need to make a little transition here then to verse 4, which starts a new section. Um, Verses 1 to 3 are what we call the superscription of the text. Verses 4 and following, uh, let's see here is what we call the uh, salutation and the doxology of the letter. So in other words, the greeting to the churches and embedded in that greeting where John's saying, you know, I greet you, um, but also bless you, doxology, the declaration of praise and blessing. 
and that's verses 4 to 8. So four verses here, and hopefully we can pick up our pace a little bit. So let's get started with verse 4. little shift here. Salutation and doxology. John to the seven churches that are in Asia. A couple things we need to say about that. Let me read the whole verse first. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come from the seven spirits uh, who are before the throne. Now, the grammatical statement, you could put a period there, but it, the sentence does continue with another you know, complete phrase. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the fir- there's faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Okay, lots happening here that we need to comment on. Um, <clears throat> first is John. We've talked about authorship, who this John is. So if you want to go back and listen about what we said about authorship, please feel free to do so. I'll just uh, I'll remind us that um, some people don't think that this is the Apostle John who wrote the Gospel of John and 1, 2, 3 John. And by the way, not all scholars agree that even John wrote John. Some think it was Lazarus or someone else. I believe it was John because the church tradition says it's John. And I, I think that it would be a little strange for the Holy Spirit to have centuries and centuries of believers reading the Gospel of John with the name John at the top when it's not John, it's Lazarus. Now, you can talk about the ancient world and, you know, tradition and how that developed, but still, I think that what transcends that is the importance that at the heart of the gospel is truth and the proclamation of truth and the setting free of lives from deception uh, through the declaration of truth and to say that to all these millions, billions of Christians through the centuries that this book is the gospel of John, to say actually it was Lazarus just seems off to me. Okay, different point, different day. John, I believe it's John the Apostle. Uh, one of the other reasons, uh, one of the reasons I believe it's John the Apostle, beyond what we've already said, actually this isn't beyond, this is just a reiteration, he doesn't have to clarify who he is, it's just John, and that's a common name. So he must be well known, it must be a John that they know well, and I don't know of any other John, I mean John Mark possibly, um, but this idea John the Elder or some other John or that it's uh, pseudepigraphal that is written by a false, not someone who's taking on the name of John, not likely we treat those, those issues, but it's just John. It's like, hey, this is from Matt to all these churches. Well, everyone must know who that Matt is. He must have a reputation, authority, and an accepted authority, probably apostolic authority. So the fact that it's just John indicates to me, at least, that it's the apostle. Okay, to the seven churches that are in Asia. Uh, this is really interesting because there are more than seven churches uh, that are in Asia. There were other churches beyond these. We have Colossae, Hierapolis, Magnesia, Tralas, why seven? Of course, um, the number seven, specifically numbers in apocalyptic literature are very important, so we have to pause at that number seven and say there's probably some symbolism. Um, I would go eliminate the, you know, the word probably and say there is symbolism here, a seven being the number of completion, that this, this letter, this prophecy, this apocalypsis is to more than just these seven churches. It's to all the churches, the universal church, the church as it is complete. Now, that doesn't negate the fact that there are specific letters to specific churches that we're going to see. Of course, Ephesus and Smyrna and Sardis, Laodicea, Thyatira, Pergamum. Um, it's, but however, it's not just for them. It is for them, it is, excuse me, to them, but it's for the entire church, the universal church, seven as the number of completion. Again, uh, we could talk about the inspiration of Scripture and the hermeneutical notion that the fact that the Bible is not written to us, but it is written for us. So the letter to the Romans is not to Matt Ayers and Wesley Biblical Seminary Worshiping Community, uh, but it is for us that there's this... Uh, uh, eternal truth that transcends just this historical audience. It doesn't negate or invalidate or, 
or undo the significance of the message to those historical audiences. Um, those are absolutely essential for understanding to arriving at what the text means for us today. Um, but we say here that John writes to the seven churches. It's intended for the universal church. It's not just for these seven churches. It is for these seven, but not only these seven. So the number seven, number of completion. We're going to see seven. We're going to see 12. We're going to see 144,000. We're going to see 666. Um, we're going to see three and a half a lot, which of course is half of seven um, in the book of Revelation. So uh, uh, this is our first reference to a symbolic number, but at the same time, it is also, of course, a literal number. It is two seven churches. So um, so there we go. Uh, Asia, this isn't a contemporary Asia of what we see as, you know, um, the, the Far East and Russia. This is Asia Minor, which is a much smaller area. Um, this is, so don't think like the biggest continent on the planet as we do today when we hear Asia. Think Asia Minor. Um, let me give you, um, yeah, we'll, we'll go past that. We'll go past that. Just checking my notes here. Um, essentially, this area of Asia, Asia Minor is modern day Turkey. Um, so that little peninsula there uh, that's right across uh, right across from um, Greece, which is across from Italy in the Mediterranean there. So modern day Turkey, essentially. Um, let's see here. Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was, who is to come from the seven spirits who are before his throne. So grace to you and peace combines both Greek notions and Hebrew notions. Grace is a... Um, now, that's not to say that grace isn't a Hebrew notion, right? So I think that's, that's you know, grace is certainly uh, present in the Old Testament and in Hebrew notions. Uh, but um, it was more like parlance, talk about charis or charis in, in the Greco-Roman world. Um, and then peace is absolutely a dominant uh, Hebrew notion of shalom, right? And so we have this audience that is in Asia or Asia Minor. That's probably it's certainly a Greek-speaking audience with uh, living in the context of Jews around them, and prob very, very likely even Messianic Jews worshiping together with Gentile believers in Jesus as the Messiah. So we have a bit of a marrying here of of cultures. We have to be really careful though about how we think and talk about these things. I think that some scholars get a little carried away um, with this. I'll put it this way, as a missionary serving in Haiti for 13 years, I don't know of a culture on the planet as different from Western, you know, European culture, which I grew up in, in America, as a, as a white guy, right, than, than Haitian culture, which is also African culture, and so different in so many ways, of course. But I have, I found that over the 13 years of learning to speak the language and cultural norms and eating food, you know, fully, you know, uh, trying to incarnate myself to uh, be understandable, translatable to the Haitian context and even the Haitian context to me. I found the longer I lived in an intercultural, cross-cultural setting, as dramatically different as Haiti and America, that people are people are people are people, <laughs> that there is this transcendent human quality. We All of our needs are the same. We're all of the same race. That's not to undermine, negate, and validate cultural differences. They are important, but I do find that they tend to be more superficial uh, than some modern-day notions, schools of thought uh, give credence to. And so people, whether you're a white American male or you're a black Haitian uh, female, whether you're making $100,000 a year or $100 a year, our fears are the same, our anxieties the same, our needs are the same, the language we may speak may be different, you know, how we communicate, of course, is going to be different, the climate issues are going to change, you know, going to 
place certain emphases on different values in one place compared to another place. So there are differences, they are important, but at the, when it comes down to it, people are people. And so that's why I just have a bit of pause by talking about Greek notions and Hebrew notions, and they are there, um, but I just try to be extra cautious, let's say. Okay, that being said, grace and peace, if we say grace is a Greek notion and peace is a Hebrew notion, there's a reason we have grace first and then peace after it, right? Because peace yields from grace. We don't have peace with God without the grace of God going before. So peace is the outcome of grace. God extends to us grace so that we can be at peace. Um, So grace being unmerited favor, especially for those who don't deserve that favor. And and, um, in light of and again, not, not this not being a, an episode on or a series even on, you know, systematic theology or dogma or doctrine, but more on scripture. Uh, you know, it's hard for me just to scratch on these things and not go deeper. But to say that, you know, God, because of sin and our inherited sin and our acquired sin, that is sin that uh, we've inherited from the sin nature, original sin, as well as the sins that we've actually committed, sets us at odds against God. This is basic gospel 101. Not everyone believes in penal substitution. I, for one, absolutely do. The penal substitution theory of atonement that God extends to us grace. Now, whether or not you embrace penal substitution, it's very, very rare, especially among evangelicals, to not, but there are some. Uh, But even those that, that deny penal substitution or ransom theory, it's another theory of atonement, uh, that Jesus kind of stands in our place and takes the wrath of God onto himself, that we can, the, the wrath that would otherwise be incurred against us is alleviated, and then we can return and be reconciled to God. Um, th- they would even uh, accept the notion that peace results from grace, whether grace is extended because of Jesus' substitutionary role in atoning for our sins, or just out of God's kindness. No matter how you look at it, grace is required for us to be at peace. So, unmerited favor, uh, and peace is a result of that favor. Now, this is interesting. You know, we could, um, I try to combine here like exegesis and doctrine and theology with some popular notions from time to time and just deal with the issues of our day, but oftentimes when we think of peace um, today, we think of uh, peace coming only as an outcome as justice being meted out. Um, that we can only be at peace if it's sort of this like retributive justice that um, they the, the 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 villains get theirs and therefore peace can be established. Um, but it's interesting that oftentimes, as we see in Scripture, peace is the result of unmerited favor, not because of just simply balancing the scales. Now, again, I do believe that God forgives us our sins not because we ask and He's gracious. He forgives us our sins because Jesus died on the cross, right? So there is that justice element. I'm not denying that element. Um, But that grace and mercy are mysteriously built into God's very notions and plans for uh, redeeming humanity. So sometimes, you know, I guess if I were preaching this, I'd say, if you're lacking peace, look for some grace. Um, if you're not at peace with someone, consider just forgiveness oh, for Jesus' sake. You know, he, he paid for the penalty. You don't have to make them pay as well. So if, if we just have to remember that grace and peace go hand in hand. But gr- peace yields some grace, which is why grace comes first in this arrangement here. From him who is and who was and who is to come. This is refer- reference to God the Father because in verse 5 it says, "...and from Jesus Christ the faithful witness." So him who was, who is, who was, and who is to come. This is an interesting um, declaration. The order of the, this sort of phrase appears several different times in Revelation, but the order changes. Sometimes it's to him who was, is, and is to come. But him here we have is, 
was. So present, past, future, as opposed to past. What seems most intuitive is past, present, future. Was, is, is to come. But here we have is, was, is to come. Um, scholars debate over whether or not the arrangement of that those particular pieces are significant or not, or if it's just arbitrary, you know, uh, just John maybe changing it up. So while they debate that, what they don't debate is that this is certainly a callback to Genesis 3.14, or excuse me, Exodus 3.14, which is the where God gives his personal name to Moses. If you send me to my brothers who are enslaved in Egypt, the Israelites, to deliver them, uh, and they ask me who sent me, what should I tell them? What's your name? I am who I am. Now that that name is debated exactly what that means, especially between you know even Jewish rabbis. Um, but there's one area of commonality among all uh, Jewish tradition interpretation of the "I am who I am" name, and that is the eternality of God. That is related to the transcendence of God. That He's not bound to time or space. He is the uncreated Creator. Everything else that was created it has a beginning. God does not have a beginning. Even Jesus before His incarnation. As Jesus of Nazareth, he's eternally preexistent as the divine son, eternally generated from the Father. That's very specific doctrinal, you know, creedal language, eternal generation of the son. Um, uh, yeah, okay. So, <clears throat> the eternality of God, God the Father, this is the one who is, who was, and is to come. So, it's saying that God transcends time and space, he is eternal, it's the same God of the Old Testament. But more than that, there is a promise here. Right, so uh, remember our, our audience, first century Christians who are suffering persecution at the hands of a powerful government who doesn't like Christians because they don't, um, they're not accommodating, you know, the imperial cult. That is the recognition that the emperors are gods. Now, scholars debate. We talked before about the date, Claudius, Nero, who, who, under which emperor? Because even Caesar didn't claim deity. It wasn't until after his death that he was deified. Uh, Nero did, and Claudius certainly did, and it wasn't instituted as law until Claudius. So how prevalent was, you know, how pervasive was the imperial cult and the, the obligatory worship of emperors as deities? Nonetheless, John's audience is reminded that God pre-existed the enemies of the church, and he will outlive the enemies of the church because he is eternal. He is in a different category. There's a future hope here. He is the one who is to come. The Caesars, the Neros, the Claudiuses, they are not the ones who are to come, and they are not the ones who are there at the creation of the world. They are temporal. They are limited. They are not perennial. And so there is a appeal to a greater, higher, eternal power here that should be a source of encouragement and inspiration to the church because of his eternality set in contrast to the finitude of human leaders and human governments, and even the powers of darkness. So this isn't just like this obscure, you know, uh, statement about the eternality and transcendence of God. This is a statement that should lend encouragement to a church that is being persecuted. Okay, um, and from the seven spirits who are before His throne, uh, this is quite interesting. We're not exactly sure uh, what this means, the seven spirits who are before his throne. And it's, there's a deep conversation here. But because of our time, I'm going to leave you hanging. I want to come back in our next episode and talk about the seven spirits who are before the throne. This is the Holy Spirit. Are these angels? Uh, are these, w what are these exactly? So we got through a couple, uh, one verse. <laughs> I promise we will speed up. Uh, but nonetheless, we'll go at our own pace. That's the beauty of being the host of the show is that I am my own 
restriction. So uh, in any case, we'll pick up there with the seven spirits before the throne. Uh, Thank you, Wesley Biblical Seminary, trusted leaders for faithful churches. God bless. We'll see you next time. Thank you.